Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. The year is 1990, and this podcast is approved by the American Dental Association, and we promise we're going to go easy on the Pepsi. The movie, Home Alone. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we will shoot them into outer space. Uh, we are right now searching for the best fucked up family film. We're in the middle of our miniseries. And Amy, what better way to celebrate family and also, the holidays with the ultimate fucked up family, the McAllisters. We are talking about Home Alone, and I cannot be more excited about it. <laughs> this is perfect. This is for every kid who ever wished they could make their family disappear, and also that they could test medieval torture implements on strangers they just met. <laughs> and now, very different than last week's film, uh, The Farewell, which really has stuck with me. I know we've been watching a lot of these films, but I think the thing that keeps on echoing through my head after watching uh, Farewell is that speech that the grandma gives where she talks about embracing life, essentially. You know, she said, no one wants you to say that you're not a good singer and, you know, just get up there and sing. And and I've really come back to that a couple times uh, and just thinking about those like life lessons and the way that they did I, I don't know, as an audience member, I feel like we got all that good family knowledge given to us for free. We didn't even have to be a part of that family. That's true. And, you know, I bet Nene would have some positive things to say about Kevin McAllister. You, you're a kid who doesn't think you can pack your own suitcase. And look at you buying fabric softener. I don't look even know what you do with fabric you. softener. I've actually really never used it. I, I you know, by the way, it's bad for the skin. I will say uh, I do use fabric softener. I do. Is it bad for the skin? 
That's what I heard. I heard it makes your skin right. break out in your pillowcase. I don't know. Interesting. All right. I'm going to take a look at that. Um, I will tell you this much, that in the deleted scene, Kevin gets help buying fabric softener uh, from a, uh, a woman at the store. So he isn't as independent as the film makes him out to be. These are the facts that I know, Amy. I know a lot of facts about Home Alone. I'm excited to talk to you about it. But before we get into Home Alone, I want to ask you, what's your favorite Christmas movie? Oh, gosh. You know, I would have to say a movie that is not known as good, uh, mm-hmm. but it is my family's Christmas movie. And um, it is Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Of course it, you were going to say Dor- that. I know. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> this is often on the list of like one of the best, worst Christmas movies. Yeah. Worst movies of yeah. all time. I My dad, he was like a Mr. Science Theater guy, you know, like he had to love this movie. My dad taught me very young that Pia Zadora, I was always supposed to say she was the worst actress of all time. And and, uh, and Santa Claus Conquers the Martians has the most catchy jingle of all time. If people haven't heard it, I mean, let's just even listen to it now. All right. What about you, Paul? Well, it's tricky, right? Because um, I think it changes a lot. But the one I say that people really don't like when I tell them it's my favorite um, because they don't understand why I would say such a thing is the movie Scrooged with uh, Bill Murray. Um, I love that movie. I love it so much. Um, I think it encapsulates like everything that I think is great about Bill Murray. It has Carol Kane in it, who is absolutely fantastic in her role of uh, the ghost of Christmas uh, present. It also has uh, John Forsyth, who is great. Remember him from Dallas? I mean, now I'm even dating myself, but I love it so, so much. Have you seen this movie? Oh, absolutely. That movie. I mean, we are friends because you say that you love that movie. I am bonded (laughs) with you because you say that you love them. I think that movie is terrific. And, and, and can I put in one more? Um, st- yeah. If we're going to uh, stick up for our unpopular Christmas yeah. movies. Although I think I think Scrooge is popular. I really love the California Raisins Claymation Christmas special. Have you oh, ever wow. seen that? I have not. And amazing. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> it is. I mean, most of it is on YouTube now. It is. It is definitely our family tradition. You know, the California Raisins, they sing like, here we come a wassail in. And um, it's beautiful. <laughs> It's beautiful. I My very first Christmas with my boyfriend, we decorated the tree and I was like, we're going to watch my family's claymation special because, you know, he's like a really big Rudolph guy. Um, and he hated it. And I've like made him watch it every Christmas since and he continues to hate it. But he is accepting that it is now our tradition. I all right, I'm going to definitely check that out. And I wanted to bring up one other thing about Scrooge. If you need one more one more reason to watch it, and that is Michael O'Donohue is the writer of Scrooge. And he is probably the most controversial SNL writer. He was the one who didn't fit into any kind of, um, he was a big fuck you guy. Like he made a video that I watched as a kid that I love called Mr. Mike's Mondo video. And it was just, I remember like the opening scene is him just throwing cats into a pool. Uh, it's bizarre. He's weird. Wait, real He cats? brings to... Yeah, I know that you weren't probably going to like it, but I feel like, but it's funny. It is funny. <laughs> I mean, he's not hurting the cats. 
I mean, I've always wanted to throw my cat into a big bank of snow. I'd love to like take my cat to snow and put him in and then see what he does. So I can kind of understand. He is on the first sketch that SNL ever did, which is uh, where he is doing like a English as a foreign language uh, sketch with John Belushi. And he's giving him the words. And then in the middle of the sketch, uh he has a heart attack and then John Belushi is copying him and then he has a heart attack and they both die on the ground. Did you ever see that? Well, that, that sounds very um, <laughs> like les incompetents. <laughs> Wait, you don't know that sketch? That is like the famous, oh, that's the, literally the opening sketch of SNL. You know, I can picture Ever. It, maybe. I think I can picture it. I can picture I will John feed Belushi your collapsing. To the w- but my entire childhood memory of watching like reruns of Saturday Night Live is just John Belushi collapsing. So it's hard to tell if, if I'm remembering that All collapse right, so or a different fair, collapse. Fair, fair. I have a lot of love for uh, Michael O'Donohue. I think he's an interesting guy. Uh, so anyway, that's why I love that movie so much. And I do love the movie that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and I even have a hot take on it, too. Um, so what do you think, Amy? Should we unwrap it? Because I want to keep in the uh, Christmas theme here. The year is 1990. And just like Buzz's girlfriend... Oof. This is the largest and most complete T-Rex skeleton is discovered in South Dakota, and it is named Sue, in honor of the paleontologist who found it. A global ban on the ivory trade is set in motion, the demolition of the Berlin Wall begins, and the U.S. enters a recession. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee publishes a formal proposal for the World Wide Web, and the first web page is written. It's revealed that Grammy-winning pop duo Milli Vanilli were lip-syncing all their songs on their album, which gained them their big, big award at the Grammys that year. Also, the increase in advanced technology means that so many cool toys with improved graphics and gaming capabilities are being released. And I'm talking about one of the biggest, the Game Boy. That's right. Oh, the Game Boy. When you open up that gift, when you were, if you were lucky enough to get it, huh, you lucky duck. Anyway, the hot movies of this year included Amy's favorite film, Goodfellas, The Godfather Part 3, last week's film, Edward Scissorhands, which people do consider a Christmas film, and today's feature home alone let's take a listen to a clip i'm in kind of a pain lately i said some things i shouldn't have i really haven't been too good this year yeah i'm kind of upset about it because i really like my family even though sometimes i say i don't sometimes i even think i don't do you get that i think so how you feel about your family is a complicated thing Especially with an older brother. Deep down, you always love them. But you can forget that you love them. And you can hurt them and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Home Alone. This movie is written by John Hughes and directed by Christopher Columbus. And it's the story of an eight-year-old named Kevin McAllister, played by the one and only Macaulay Culkin, who is accidentally left behind when his giant family flies to France. Most of the movie is actually pretty chill in Home Alone. Uh, you know, Kevin is living alone and it's fine. It's a lot more stressful for his mom, Catherine O'Hara, who's trying to get back to him. But then in the very last act, some criminals played by Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern break in and young Kevin decides to burn them, jab them, tar them, feather them and conk them on the head. Uh, this is a movie where you would think Kevin could just call the cops. But, you know, hey. This movie is coming out on November 16th, 1990. And when you take that and rewind it back, the airwaves were all about telegenic white boys who just took things too far. Like the number one album on the charts, 
To the Extreme by Vanilla Ice. Collaborate and listen. I sit back with my brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly. Flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow. To the extreme, I rock a mic like a vandal. Light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle. Dance. Corrupt the speaker that booms. I'm All right. I love that. Wow, Vanilla Ice and Milli Vanilli. This is a, a, a landmark year. Yeah, it really shaped my consciousness for good and for ill. Well, Amy, I wanted to ask you, because we haven't really talked about this, but just your general feeling about Home Alone. Uh, because I imagine this came out at a, a point in your life where you could probably identify it more than right now. But like, yeah, what like what baggage do you bring to this film? You know, Home Alone is the first big movie sensation I remember. It's the really? first movie that I remember like every kid had seen. And we went to the theater and we went to the theater twice. I think, yeah, Home Alone is definitely the first movie I remember seeing in the theater twice. Unless I was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's like right around the same time. So I get a little <laughs> bit hazy. But it was a phenomenon. Like it was such a phenomenon at the time. And it made me, I think, aware of movies in a different way. You know, like I, I'd gone to movies, of course, as a kid. Right. I think. I think. But I don't really have memories of going to the movies as a kid until I get to Home Alone. I think one of the things I remember about this film so clearly was that you could buy it for $19.99 at the supermarket. Like when it came out on VHS, you could go into the supermarket and buy a movie. Now, let me just rewind it back. That was not a thing that you could do. It was very rare. The only movies that ever were sold for $19.99 in my memory were Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Home Alone, because mostly VHS tapes were like $99, right? And they were super expensive, and you had to go to a video store, and maybe at a certain point, they would become a used copy, and you could buy a, a copy like that. But this was a brand new copy in the cover box, and I'm talking about VHS here. Like, it was, I remember going to the supermarket and being like, Mom, can we buy Home Alone? And she said, yes, and I had it, and I put it on my shelf like I was a big, important person, like... That's my Home Alone cassette. Very proud. You're like, this of that. is my video library. Yeah, it was exciting to have a, uh, you know, and I know that that's so commonplace now. And, and, you know, we're literally just, you hit a button and you either own it or you're streaming it. But there was something so cool at owning something that was like a part of a video store, which I, I'm, I've just dated myself a million times. But I will say that that is the thing that was so interesting. But more to the point, even though I remember all of that, I wasn't the biggest fan of Home Alone. I don't know why. It just didn't hit me in a way where I was obsessed with it. Maybe I was just a little bit older uh, when it came out, so I felt like it was a kid's movie, and I think I was probably rejecting a kid's movie. Um, but it has been the movie that has grown on me so much, and recently so because my kids started watching it and I was like oh, home alone and I loved it I absolutely loved it I was like oh I love and by the way this is the first John Hughes movie that we've ever done I love John Hughes I mean but she's having a baby is probably the only one that I haven't really revisited that I'm you know that not probably like up there up there but I love all everything that John Hughes touches is magical in a way that connects with me. And this movie as an adult has become a staple in my life. 
Well, then let's get into it. Let's get into it. I mean, I have not rewatched this movie since I was a child. So I think we're coming at this from like very different memories. I literally have watched this movie five times in the last three weeks. And (laughs) um, because my kids will watch it over and over. Now, I'm not watching it. You know, from start to finish, I'm catching major sections of it. I mean, right now, thank God my kids are on to the Christmas Chronicle 2. And mainly they love 2 because one of the main kids in it, his name is Jack Booker. Jack Booker, like a book that you read. But when they hear him say it, they think his name is Jack Booger. So they love <laughs> Jack Booger. So my kids run around the house going, I'm Jack Booger <laughs> and fall down laughing. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, just to bring you into that. And I will tell you that this morning to prepare, um, not only did I do notes, but I did color in my Home Alone coloring book, which I also got for my kids last Christmas. So I'm really prepared. Do you only just need one color? Do you only just need the color red to color blood on everything? No, they don't get that hurt in the book. They get, you know, you get the color in his red sweater and you got to use his, the bright yellow. Um, but this movie is, this movie is huge. So I want to hear all your opinions about coming to it again. Like walk me through. Yeah. Okay. Well, the very first thing that caught my mind when I started watching it again was I've seen the logo to this movie a thousand times. You know, and then they do a big build up in the credits of like, here's the logo emerging. Here's the words Home Alone appearing on the screen. Yes. I never noticed the perfection of it being all capital letters except for that last E. That last little tiny E that doesn't fit into the rest of the logo under the house. And I never really realized that that little E is like the child stand in, that it's the Macaulay Culkin of that title. And I was like, who in the design meeting came up with that? Because they are genius. I did not realize that either. I mean, that is great. When you said little E, I just thought about the Entourage Christmas movie, which was never released nor written. Um, (laughs) Nor written. (laughs) I think this movie has a bunch of details like that. Like that small little thing that takes a very broad concept and grounds it and makes it way better. And that opening I get the emotion because of the John Williams score. That score and the score throughout this whole film is is top notch. I mean, this is one of John Williams's best, I think, as far as it's so subtle and it sounds like Christmas music that would be Christmas music. Like it doesn't like he didn't do anything new, but he created something that felt so familiar that I I associate that music with Christmas now. Okay, wait, can I play you a clip of the John Williams score that popped out at me? Because maybe I'm crazy, yeah. but I was like. Oh, he's doing a little bit, just a little bit of subconscious Star Wars. Amy, I have come to realize that everything that John Williams does sounds a little bit alike and also has a nod to Star Wars. I used to do a game show at UCB where we would just play John Williams music back to back. And it was hard to it. It is sometimes hard if you find the right area of it to d- distinguish which movie it is from. Um, I mean, there's even things in the last Star Wars film that he was reusing from another film. Like people are like, oh, yeah, he used that again. Like, and, you know, God bless him. The man, the man's amazing. I've seen him live, puts on a great show. 
uh, you know, he can reuse some music. If there's only so many notes on the keyboard, what are you going to do? Two monkeys typing on a keyboard, they're both going to come up with the score to, to Star Wars. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Okay, is it going to sound crazy to that I didn't really remember that Home Alone was a Christmas movie? I, I, and then I watched this movie and I'm like, oh, every single frame of this is reminding me that this is a Christmas movie because the McAllisters are the most Christmassy family I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. They're so Christmas. They are the classy Christmas family on the block. You know, we spend a lot of time on the block where they live. And I appreciate that all of the houses on the block actually have different colors. You know, one house is kind of blue, one house is very rainbow, but the McAllisters decorate their Christmas house in all white, which to me, when I was a kid, that meant you're the classy people, right? Yes. John Williams has destroyed me for what I thought middle-class suburban success was. This is not middle-class suburban success. This is rich-ass motherfuckers. Like, they are rich. Like, I truly, watching it again, I was like, there is a level of disappointment, no matter where I go, if I'm not in a house as big as that, because it just seemed like, oh, that's a normal size. That's a family home. And all of his houses felt like that from Ferris Bueller. Like, I mean, you know, different uh, if you're talking about Pretty in Pink and on the other side of the tracks. But they definitely embraced this big Americana house. Like this is this is the house of I mean, it's a perfect house. Like they even have two Christmas trees or maybe one. I don't know. But it's a, it's a perfect house. <laughs> yeah, I think they said they were looking for a house that was both warm and also a little bit malevolent. But then you go inside the house, right? <laughs> and what really startled me about the house and this watch is that, like, they have just decorated the house so that it is perennially going to be ready for Christmas. You know, when you walk around the house, like, every single thing in this house is red and blue. Like, the furniture will be, like, red oh, yeah. wood with green cushions. There's got, they've got green walls, they've got red carpet, they've got, you know, red pot holders, and they've got, like, all their laundry detergent is coordinated. All of their tooth products are, like, coordinated red and green. This is the most, I mean, the parents Set design. go to bed under, like, a holly and mistletoe bow that they have strapped to their, to the back of their headboard. And they've redone this whole house, put a gingerbread in the corner, made it the ultimate Christmas house just to leave. They're not even going to be there. I know. Yeah, They're why would gone. they decorate it so much? It should be for the day after Christmas. Like, and I would buy that even more. Here's what I'll say to you, Amy. Not a real inside of that house. Um, they couldn't find 
the perfect inside of a house. They had the perfect outside of the house. And what they did was they built that in a gym, a local gym in Chicago. So they were able to build it and do everything they wanted to do in that house. So I think you really were able to create, and again, it's all these little details, this house that had the perfect amount of windows, the perfect way the stair was. like Because the third act is full-on Looney Tunes, slapstick, crazy. I mean, the like to believe that end, but to also have all those things in place. I know that, you know, when you're, when you're often out scouting locations, you're, you're trying to figure out, well, how can this happen here? Because you're writing, unless you're Christopher McQuarrie, who location scouts and then writes the script, you're often writing the script and then location scouting. So you have to kind of figure out what place has all of the things. And they knew that this house played such a giant part that they had to construct it all. And they did it not in Hollywood because it's John Hughes and they did it out in a, a gym. And I love that this house has, a, it has a great flow to it. Well, and yet the people who live in this actual house that they use oh, as their model from the outside. So bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because as much as they did duplicate this stuff in the, in a, in a swimming pool, in a gym so that they could like flood it with water. Yeah. They also kept this house. They had crew people at this house for like five months. The family. Whoa. Yeah. The family who lived in there, they told them like, can we use your house? We're just going to have it for like four to six weeks. And the family was like, you know, sure. And they're like, we'll get you guys an apartment. It'll be great. But then the production designer told the family who was actually living there, I would not leave your house if I were you. Because according to the contract you signed, if you leave while you're not on the premises, if they decide they need to like tear a wall down. They can actually do that, but they can't if you're here. So the family has stayed in one of the back bedrooms the whole time, five Whoa. months. They, I think they said they used their apartment that they were given for three nights max. They like cooked on a hot plate up in that tiny room to feed themselves. Oh. And then their kids would go down and like eat from the food trucks that the crew had. All I'm going to say is this. Never, ever, ever, ever let anyone shoot in your house. It's the one rule that I firmly believe. Never, ever, ever. No one cares that much. Uh, the story I always tell is like my friend had this beautiful uh, wood paneled, um, I don't even know what you would call it, just a, a wood paneled back wall. Let's just say it's a back wall. And um, you know, the son came into his house every day in a certain way. So the wood panels got stained by the sun and it was beautiful. The, the, it just, it looked aged and, and wonderful. He had somebody shoot there. What do they do? They destroyed that wood panel. So they're, well, buy a new one, but that one isn't aged like the other ones. And you can't just age like a wood panel to like match the, it's like, so his whole house aesthetic wrecked. It's not worth it. It will never be worth it. And I'll tell you what's even worse is those people have to now live with that house being a fucking tourist trap. Um, cause I've seen it. They actually put up a giant like fence. Be like, get out of here. Kevin's not home. It's a movie. Go home. Get out. Go. <laughs> like everybody has stopped by. I was reading an article. They were talking about all the people who've come by. It's like the prime minister of Japan went by. The prime minister oh, of Japan was God. like, I have a couple hours to kill. I'm going to go to the home alone house. The prime minister of Japan is into uh, the Kalk. <laughs> I don't call him Mac. I call him the Kalk. Uh, wow. Um, that is amazing. And, you know, uh, I know you don't watch secession, but, uh, you know, it's a whole, uh, Macaulay Culkin family affair here because his little brother 
is a, one of the best characters on uh, on Secession. So I love that too. I love that maybe this kid, uh, you know, grew up in a house like this. I mean, there's a lot of this connection. I think a lot of people draw these connections of like, who are these people? Like, you've heard the famous story about uh, the dad here. They go, well, how could he afford the house? And a lot of the memes you see online is him with Tony Soprano. Because he was also like a cop on the take. So maybe that that's how he got the house. You know, like there's a lot of like, there's a, a lot of people like to put uh, a lot into this this movie and how it creates a giant shared universe with everything ever made movie and TV wise. I mean, do you think it does come out the same year as Goodfellas? Maybe Joe Pesci goes on the run and doesn't get shot and um, gets a second career maybe. as as a, as a home invasion specialist. Uh, by the way, I would love that. And you just blew my mind. I never, I mean, even though I just said it at the top of the episode, I mean, John Hurd, uh, everybody in this movie brings it, but I think I'm, I'm most impressed with Joe Pesci because I've never seen him even come close to this kind of a performance after this movie. This is a guy who is literally giving the performance of a career in Goodfellas or one in, in pop culture, this guy is exploding, like literally exploding. I'm, I'm blown away because Home Alone is the biggest grossing domestic film this year. Ghost is the biggest grossing international film. But I imagine that Goodfellas is definitely, you know, in that top 10. I mean, definitely, uh, you know, in the in the regards of acclaim and and uh, and attention. Yeah, wow. and, and they cast him then before move. that movie came out. You know, like they they didn't know it was going to be the year oh, of the really? Pesci. I think that Christopher Columbus cast wow. him weirdly because of Raging Bull. He was like, that guy was funny in Raging Bull. Yeah. And so I'll put him in this movie. Columbus is really interesting because he barely was able to direct this movie. Or not barely able to. They were having a hard time trying to figure out what he should direct. And there was two scripts in front of him both John Hughes films, uh, and one was Chevy Chase's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which I love so much, and the other one was this. And his fear of working with Chevy Chase gave gave us this film. There's also Wait, like no, he a rumor actually that said he, yes to working with Chevy Chase. He worked Chase. on it. He did. Right? He, like, okay, he yeah, worked he worked on, on, it. on it. Yeah. And Chevy Chase was such a monster that he called John Hughes and he was like, I'm sorry, I actually can't do this one. Amazing. So he left that one to come over here And there's everything, again, could go wrong with this movie. I think that this movie, we've seen the bad version of this movie, right? Uh, Kid, like too cute kid doing, you know, irascible stuff. But I think when you talk about like Joe Pesci in this film doing like a real big comedy performance Again, it just adds a little bit more weight to it. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, Joe Pesci said he wanted to, uh, he never gets to work for children. So he wanted to be able to do a film where he got to work for children. But all of the stories about the Home Alone set seem to imply that Joe Pesci was more of a baby to work with than Macaulay Culkin because he was just mad all the time. Like he was mad that he couldn't swear. He was mad that the call time was really early. Like the story is that Joe Pesci likes to golf every morning. He does nine holes before he likes to go to set. And they were like, we have a 7 a.m. call time. And he was like, absolutely not. That's not going to happen. And like their timing was just all crazy because like Macaulay Culkin couldn't work after 9 or 10 p.m. And then like Joe Pesci like wanted to go golfing in the morning and everything was getting all scrambled. And then at least Joe Pesci hit upon the idea of solving his cursing problem, which is he's just going to talk like Yosemite Sam every time he gets hurt, which I love. I mean, like here, take a listen to how he verbalizes for children the experience of getting shot in the nuts. Be a good little fella now and open the door. 
<laughs> I mean, but that also is in the writing. I mean, it adds to the aesthetic, which is that cartoon aesthetic. I mean, it is it is clanking of pans. It is Roadrunner style rage. I also have a couple things to add about Pesci. Maybe some better things to add about Pesci. One, um, he never wanted to hang out with Macaulay Culkin or really see Macaulay Culkin on set because he wanted to keep that illusion of being a bad guy. Um, which mm-hmm. I think is actually really important because I, you know, I think when you're on set with a kid, you're always trying to really just make sure they're having a good time. And probably Joe Pesci is one of the better actors to understand that that would wreck the dynamic there, even though they don't spend that much like time together. Um, also Pesci was really adamant about who his co-star, uh, was, and they had kind of played around with, uh, another co-star and it wasn't really working out for him. And Pesci was like, you got to get Daniel Stern. I like Daniel Stern. Studio's like, we can't pay Daniel Stern. And then Columbus had to go beg them, like, please, 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 this movie will not be good. And and we need to keep Pesci happy. Get us Daniel Stern. And they did. And the two of them are great together because they're both buffoons. I mean, they, uh, you know, they're dressed kind of uh, inspired by Fagin. Did you know that? That that was their their costuming? Oh, no, I hadn't noticed. But I did actually look up the guy who had been cast in the Daniel Stern part and then yes. had the part taken away. His name was Daniel Roebuck. And when he got I know him, the yes. film, when, oh, you know him. Well, maybe he's I mean, I know him person. because of 80s films. Yeah. Aha. He, he said, you know, 20 years after the film came out, he was like giving an interview about how how much it fucked with him at the time that he got cut out of the number one movie at the box office for 12 weeks, you know, this iconic film and replaced um, again with Daniel Stern. And he said, you know what? 20 years later, what difference has it really made in Daniel Stern's career? I've had literally had a hundred more opportunities than he did because perhaps people define him from that movie. Oh, that's a shitty thing to say. And I don't think that that's entirely true. I don't think that you look at Daniel Stern and you think, oh, that's, you know, a wet bandit. I mean, because it's certainly not true for Joe Pesci. I think it, it oddly, there's a connection to these characters that's kind of wonderful. I remember reading an article about the Irishman and uh, Scorsese even said that when they were shooting out in the streets, so many people came up to Joe Pesci and were like, home alone, home alone, home alone. And the idea that Joe Pesci making his like comeback in a Scorsese film where he is most known for his best work that the only thing that people want to talk to him about is Home Alone. And I think there's an, <laughs> in, I think that people feel endeared to them, but I don't think like, I don't think that like the character that he plays in this, uh, Daniel Stern is so like, oh, I can't get that other character out of my head. I don't know. I don't think that like, that's why I think that these actors are better than another actor might do a more stereotypical broad performance. that would be hard to kind of shake that. I think that they're a little bit more, um, I don't know, they're a little bit more three-dimensional in a movie that is heightened out of, out of crazy land. But uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I, don't, I mean, Daniel Stern said the funniest place he was ever recognized, because it has defined his life, was um, in 2003, you know, when we went to war in Iraq, he went to go visit the troops in Baghdad. And they're like, we'll show you the village. So he's walking through a village in Iraq. And all of a sudden, this huge pack of young Iraqi kids run up to him. They start yelling, Marv, oh, Marv. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, wow. Isn't that beautiful? I, I mean, he like he has, now that I would say the generation of us who fell in love with this movie as children, and then some of us went on to control like 
ad agencies and make like right. Home Alone commercials and like oh, keep yeah. Home Alone in the consciousness. He's embraced it. You know, he's embraced it. He's had fun. He made a little video um, just a couple of years ago where he was still in character as Marv talking about the trauma that he was put through by Kevin McAllister. Please, Harry, come find me. He's going to get us. Nobody believed us about this stupid kid. They hit me in the head with a brick. He's ironed it. The, the bugs still. He electrocuted me for God's sakes. He turned me inside out. Now he's coming back to get us. Please, Harry, I'm home. Alone. And I was scared. Please. Maybe it, you know, I don't know. Now I'm like thinking because, you know, I know obviously Daniel Stern from Diner and uh, and the Wonder Years. So I, I think of him as being a big part of my childhood. But you're right. Like sometimes yeah. when you have a character like this and you revisit their work all the time, uh, even if it's the same work, you you feel like they are still always there. Like the reason why I don't feel like Joe Pesci has stopped acting is because I've seen a lot of his movies when he's not really acting that much. Um, That's true. Like way, you watch him on Rewind, so it feels like he's never gone anywhere. Exactly. And Daniel Stern, and it, he said that like The Wonder Years is actually one of the things that really helped him with this film because he felt like he was in this mindset of children and childhood and how they think. I, l- I want to get into that, too, because that's how I think John Hughes really what he does. It's different than the shitty version of this movie. But I want to just add two more fun facts for all of our our uh, Home Alone heads out there. So Joe Pesci's character is called Harry. Now, in the script, his name is Harry Lime, and he's actually named after Orson Welles's character in The Third Man. And again, these are these like little these little moments, these little things. and I love this character because there's something really interesting about the way that Joe Pesci plays him. And I, and I was watching the scene in particular today. It's, it's that scene where the van is following Macaulay Culkin down the street. Mm-hmm. And you were talking before about this idea of like Daniel Stern feeling like he was in the, the mindset of a kid. That scene to me is the scariest scene in the entire film of Home Alone. Um, I know that the end, they're breaking into the house, but there's this moment where a kid is being followed by these two creepy men in a van and it's stopping and it's going. And that sequence that resonated with me as a kid, like, you know, that fear of being out and it's broad daylight. He's in his neighborhood on his block, but there's something wrong there. And, you know, when he kind of like looks at, Pesci in the face and then Pesci kind of has his own little spiraling out too where he's like I don't like the way he looked at me why did he look at me that way you know there's this like these characters while I think this movie is often viewed as being incredibly comical and incredibly over the top which it all is but they have these like little moments right these little moments that connect them even if it's Joe Pesci telling Daniel Stern like don't flood the house like what are you doing like it gives them like a little bit of humanity even though we need them to flood the house because we need to want them to get that hurt as well. But like there is this, um, they're not just straight up bad. I found their characters and especially that scene in the van to be a perfect encapsulation of what this film is like super intimidating, even though everything around it is not like it's a city street, broad daylight. And, and as a kid, I've always had those moments. I I don't know. Like in that moment. And I think that that's in the writing that John Hughes has just captures like the fear that these kids have that, that I've not really seen mo- a moment like that in a film. Like I mean, this. that's exactly what you're trying to be afraid of when you're a kid. Like, exactly. don't let anybody get you in a van, you know? 
Yeah. Even when you're in your neighborhood, maybe you're not entirely safe. I also love that the van is a plumbing and heating van because like the number one thing that Kevin is afraid of is that furnace. So that he's being yes. stalked by a heating van, I think is like a nice like subconscious <laughs> tie. But yet he should let that heating van close to him because it could fix that furnace. Yeah. And I was kind of cracking up when I saw that scene because, you know, they almost it starts with him almost running him over. You know, he's like really right. distraught by the fact that he's shoplifted a toothbrush. They almost run him over and then they blame him and they're like, you stupid kid. And I was like, wow, I forget how rough we used to treat kids in our generation. You know, But isn't it to better? Be isn't it better? Yeah. Like, I, I like mean, it. I mean, I spent a lot of time when I was a kid, like walking to stores randomly with like quarters I stole from my dad's shoebox and buying <laughs> heavy metal magazines. And so and so I find it really touching, but it also felt so fresh. I was like, oh, yeah, kids well, on their own doing what they can. This whole idea of like being mean to kids, I like it because it feels more real. Like the whole opening sequence of this film isn't that people are being mean to him. I mean, there's one person who is mean to him. We'll get to him in a second. But it's almost like being shut off. Like, get out of here. This is not right for you. We don't have any time for you. Not now, not now, not now. As a parent, I see myself in that. This morning, I was trying to do a bunch of things around the house to get my kids ready. And I was doing that too. I was like, I can't go over there right now. I can't do this right now. And all kids really want is that attention and time. And you're also running on your own schedule. So... There's this meanness, but it's meanness through his eyes, like what the adult world looks like. And also, there's some people that are kind of dicks, but really, I mean, besides the robbers, it's Uncle Frank. But um, but I think it's also balanced with this like true earnestness of what it is like to be a kid, right? It's like, like everything is seen through that lens. And that's why he like believes in Santa and he wants to take the sleigh down the stairs and and he's like playing house and he's asking if a toothbrush is accepted by the American Dental Association. Like there's it's really well written. The whole movie is through that one point of view, I guess. I mean I have to say, you know, that when he wonders if his toothbrush is made is is uh, you know given the stamp yeah. of approval by the American Dental Association, when he buys fabric softener these little commercial things that he does along the way it made me think this is a kid who i think has spent a lot of time in front of the tv because yeah. nobody's paying attention to him he talks on things like an like like an ad you know he's well, kind of going through grown-up motions that i think he's adopted from tv maybe because his family is so chaotic and busy and full that nobody talks to him i mean even that famous moment where he like builds up to the edward munch scream yeah he's 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 in a commercial of one I took a shower washing every body part with actual soap, including all my major crevices, including in between my toes and in my belly button, which I never did before but sort of enjoyed. I washed my hair with adult formula shampoo and used cream rinse for that just wash shine. I can't seem to find my toothbrush, so I'll pick one up when I go out today. Other than that, I'm in good shape. And I have to say, like, I really identify with, you know, that being like a kid raised by TV, thinking like this is how people behave, doing, I would say, an incredible job of mimicking adult behavior. You know, like it, I was caught up this idea in the movie of like a kid showing that he has learned the rituals of his parents, you know, that he's learned the rituals of his tribe, even without his tribe there, even with his tribe, like in a plane over the ocean, he's like, okay, I have to leave carrots for the reindeer. I have to leave, yes. you know cookies for Santa. I have to build a tree. Like these are the things that I do to be a grown up person and realizing he had learned them. 
He had learned everything that he was supposed to absorb about how he was supposed to commemorate this holiday. And all the things that people don't expect of him, right? So it's two, it's twofold. Like in the moment where he has to, where he doesn't have that support, he is able to step up where everybody believes he's not able to step up. You know, like when he is asking for help, like, how do I pack a bag? Which is such a great, again, another great point of view. Like, what do, what do I mean, pack a bag? Like, what does that even mean? And and to take a moment with that and to see how they brush him off, like he's now this whole movie is packing a bag. Like, all right, well, I got to put together everything I know. TV literally is his friend and ally with that angel with dirty faces video that comes into play uh, in so many scenes in the film. A movie that I thought was real. Um, I until, thought it was real, too. Oh, my God. Until just recently. I mean, I was like. Because I was like, oh, this is just like they just reused like, you know, like we're no angels, like the old 1940s movie. I didn't realize it until I was older that it was actually a completely, yeah, completely made up film, you know, like and it's because the DP on this film, again, another touch that makes this movie great. Like they shot it the way that they used to shoot um, 1940s movies. I I did a little bit of research on it. It was basically um, it was like a they use this carbon filter on their black and white um, film back in the day. And so they thought, oh, this would be really great. We can actually make it look that way. Because a lot of times when you see someone trying to remake a black and white film, it it just, it doesn't have that grain. It doesn't have that like um, texture to it. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I love that they're doing this kind of Cagney-ish film. The one quibble that I have is, wait, Mm -hmm. let's even play the scene where he's watching it and then I'll tell you my quibble. Too bad Asian ain't in charge no more. What do you mean? Guys, I'm eating junk and watching rubbish. You better come out and stop me. He'll call you when he gets out. Hey, I tell you what I'm going to give you, snakes. I'm going to give you to the count of ten to get your ugly, yellow, no-good keister off my property before I pump your guts full of lead. All right, Johnny, I'm sorry. I'm going. One... Keep the change, you filthy animal. Okay, here's my one quibble. He is home, alone. He is watching a 1940s noir. That's pretty cool, honestly. And he he thinks of it as junk. And I'm like, no, you are a classy kid. You have everything at your fingertips and you are not watching cartoons. You're watching a 1940s noir. That is not junk. And I am proud of you, Kevin. Well, I also feel like he's watching it because it's like his dad's like his dad's movie. Like, I remember I was so into like the treasure of Sierra Madre. My dad had it up on his shelf, like his Mm. VH. What is my dad like? And it just felt violent. And maybe I couldn't watch that. Like, you know, like because at that level, he doesn't know what's adult or what's not like. It's just like that's an adult movie because it's a black and white movie his dad likes and there's guns in it. He's probably not watching a lot of gun stuff. Right. He doesn't seem like, you know, and that's what I love about it, too. It's that, that innocence of like. I'm watching the worst, but it's actually just like a 1930s movie, you know, and, and, uh, I wonder if this movie actually like even, even maybe, maybe slightly shifted the needle that a couple kids thought black and white movies weren't just for old people. Maybe (laughs) that black and white movies were cool. Did this movie like, I mean, this is 1990 cool stuff is about to happen in the culture. Like did Home Alone at all tell people that like old mobster noir movies in black and white were awesome. 
Look, I, I hope. I mean, you know, I, I definitely remember trying to rent it when I was a kid and being very upset. So maybe if they actually made a, full, a feature length of Angels with Dirty Faces, uh, you could have gotten more kids into it because it would have felt like a companion piece instead of this tease, this this small tease. Before we get into the basic conceit of the film, which I'm sure you can poke holes in all day and night, but um, I want to just devote a little bit of time to who I think is the true villain of this film, Uncle Frank. Can we talk about Uncle Frank? We talked about the meanness of adults, but Uncle Frank is a straight-up dick. I mean, he is a dick. He calls Kevin a jerk. Like, he calls Kevin a jerk, and no one in the family even goes like, hey, Frank, chill out. That's my kid. Like, like that's a pretty... Like, Frank is a dick. Uh, well, is he, though? I mean, come on. Yes! Like, Kevin has just ruined everybody's dinner. Like, over $100 worth of pizza, which is a lot of money, according to Uncle Frank. He didn't you know that pay Uncle for Frank it. is a cheapskate, cheapskate, yes. But still, he's just made a gigantic mess. Um... Because he didn't get a piece of cheese pizza. Now, I can understand the child's point of view. Like, you have, you're a picky eater. You have the one thing you will eat, and everybody else ate it, and it makes you feel like unloved, which is already yeah. his general mood. I could see Uncle Frank saying something a lot worse than jerk. All right. But no one defended it. Like, no one took Uncle Frank to the side. They, they... Maybe because Uncle Frank was right. Maybe because Uncle Frank wow. was right. You get that little camera pivot around the room and everybody is staring up at him. And you have that kind of low angle shot, too. I mean, in a way, yeah. this movie is shot a little bit like Tokyo Story. You know, Tatami Matt view, Tatami low Matt. view, ah. everybody's tall, everybody's big, you know, like kind of staring up from the ground. And you get that shot. Everybody's looking at him. I think they all think he's a jerk. He's being oh, a jerk. Man. We already know that he's hurt his aunt. I mean, he's. He's injuring people before the movie even begins. Listen to this. Well, how am I supposed to shave in France? Grow a goatee. Dad, nobody let me like do that. anything. Bye. You don't have anything to do? I got something for you to do. You can pick up those micro machines that are all over in there. Aunt Leslie stepped on one and almost broke her neck. He was in the garage again playing with the glue gun. Didn't we talk about that? Did I burn down the joint? I don't think so. I was making ornaments out of fish hooks. My new fish hooks? I can't make ornaments out of the old ones with dry worm guts stuck on them. Peter. Come on, Kevin. Out. Peter, Kate, do you guys have a voltage adapter? Here, here's a voltage oh, adapter. God. You're kidding, Kevin. Go pack your suitcase. Pack my suitcase? I mean, can you come with me that maybe he's a jerk? He's a very cute jerk. Look, no, I, jerk. I can see him being under tow, but the way that Uncle Frank treats this whole family is bad. And as a matter of fact, it's not been proven, but I'm going to believe it to be true. There was an original draft of this script where Uncle Frank was the ringleader of the Wet Bandits. No. Yep. That, that apparently was a part of the first draft. He was the ringleader. He'd planned it because he was jealous of his brother. It would have really complicated the film. Uh, it's so much better to have him, like, stealing salt shakers. I mean, he's, he's a perfectly done character who, by the way, was originally supposed to be done by Kelsey Grammer. And when you think of Kelsey Grammer in that part, you're like, yes. And by mm -hmm. the way, this actor is amazing. And I spent many a day looking on IMDb as my kids are watching Home Alone, just kind of tracking everybody's career. Gary Bamman. He's great. He's great. There's, I, I wouldn't change a goddamn thing in his performance. But when I, when I think about Kelsey Grammer, it's almost, it's almost too perfect. Like, it is a Kelsey Grammer character, if there ever was one. <laughs> but I like the anonymity aspect of an yes. uncle. Like, he just looks like an uncle, doesn't he? Yeah. 
You know, he just he just dissolves into the role of terrifying uncle. But anyways, I'm curious about Uncle Frank's whole story. I'm not sure who he's related to, is if he's related to Catherine O'Hara or if he's related to John Hurd. I don't know where he fits in to the spectrum of the family. Maybe he looks at his own kid, at his own kid played by Kieran Culkin, and he's like, is there an affair happening? Is there any kind of like secret wife swapping? Why does my kid look so much like that kid? Like where are the genetics coming from in here? Maybe he's got a lot on his mind. I mean. Uh, all right. Uh, you know, look, maybe Frank is misunderstood. And, you know, look, I also understand that Frank may feel very uh, out of place in this very rich house. You know, I also feel like, you know, he may be overreacting just because he he hasn't, you know, maybe he has an issue with like being taken care of. He's the older brother and maybe Catherine O'Hara is the younger sister. Now she's taking care of him. You know, she's apparently a fashion designer. That's why she has the mannequins in the basement. That's according to the novelization, of course. Um, oh, so that would explain why her uh, lip gloss just perfectly matches her hair. I mean, and let's talk about her. Let's talk about her. I love Catherine O'Hara. Oh, my gosh. She's the best. The best quality. Quality till this day. I mean, everything she does, this is such a grounded, beautiful, wonderful mom performance. And it's, I think, the hardest needle to thread because they have to leave their child home alone. And I watch this movie at the top because I didn't know if you would be coming in and being like, I don't even believe this premise. But they do a great job of setting up how this happened, right? The First of all, there's a cool little magic element, very much like a liar, liar moment where he's like, I wish my parents would disappear. And then like, you know, you hear that music, a lightning hits, the thing goes down, mm-hmm. you know, creates this, this, uh, this kind of thing. Everyone in this family hates me. Then maybe you should ask Santa for a new family. I don't want a new family. I don't want any family. Families suck. Just stay up there. I don't want to see you again for the rest of the night. I don't want to see you again for the rest of my whole life. And I don't want to see anybody else either. I hope you don't mean that. You'd feel pretty sad if you woke up tomorrow morning and you didn't have a family. No, I wouldn't. Then say it again. Maybe it'll happen. I hope I never see any jerks again. Yeah. Yeah, it's in the tradition of um, of how I believe that Mary is a witch and it's a wonderful life. You make a it, wish, something it, happens. I like it. And you know what? But by the way, a lesser filmmaker would have just made that a whole dream sequence. But no, it's a real thing. And I think they create the confusion of this moment really, really well. Um, you know, it's not that I have to go through it beat by beat. But what did you think about like, because it's a, it's a hard sell to leave a kid at home and it's a, and an and as much as he's undertow, and I think that opening sequence is shot so beautifully, the camera's like, it's very much like the Copacabana shot in Goodfellas. We're going through the house, we're meeting all these characters, even with Joe Pesci, you know, standing there at the front door in his cop uniform, he can't even get a word in edgewise. No one can get a word in edgewise, and everything's kind of moving around each other. And that opening sequence, I think, allows us to buy into the general premise of the film, right? It's It's just... The, this confusion and the getting up late and everyone getting out of the house and there are so many kids and they do the right head count. And she asks, did you do the head count? And the sister's like, yes, I did the head count. And not only did I do the head count, there's how many boys, there's how many girls, the driver, like everyone's got it all. The, you know, the fact that the tickets are laid out, like they, this movie does a great job and I think it does a great job at exposition at the top. Like John Hughes gives exposition better than anybody uh, he can lay it all out so succinctly and so quickly. But I left really enamored not only with how they lay out all the exposition, but how they 
I think cover their grounds enough that this family isn't that bad because the family's in first class, the kids are in, in, in coach, so you separate them just a little bit more. They just give it a little bit more. Not to say that you would ever like lose track of your kid, but when you have that many kids, you just assume like who's watching the little kid. And as a parent, there are moments where like a kid disappears from your sight. You just assume that they're there. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's a belief? I mean, it's heightened, but is it believable? I think it's completely believable. And I think like the kid from across the street who shows up to talk to the airport van and messes up the head count, like the sister, his sister is doing a good job. She touches the head. She confirms the existence of a young boy who's like back as to her. She does a good job. That kid, I was like, he gets off scot-free. He just fucks up everything and then runs away. But then it is his house that gets flooded by water. So all his toys are destroyed. I suppose that's fair. But honestly... Yeah, I mean, this happened in 1990 when you didn't have TSA, like, making you stop and, like, put all your bags to a conveyor belt. You really yeah. could, in my memory of it, like, smoke a cigarette all the way up to the counter and just, like, walk onto a plane, right? Oh, Wasn't it just like, oh, here, I'm rolling up, I'm on a skateboard, and now I'm on can, a plane. Like, you, you can no, buy there a no ticket rules. same day. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they say in the beginning of the movie, we have 45 minutes to catch the flight, and they're still at mm. their house, and it's not even an issue. It's like... <laughs> like I love it. Like it's like that's like it's it's tight, but it's not like that's impossible. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, now you couldn't home alone because you'd have to be like stuck in like a TSA oh, line yeah. for an hour. You'd have time to count the kid. Exactly. It's a bummer. It's a bummer that we can't get a convincing sequel because the terrorists won on that too. Um, I will tell you that the the sequel they are making now, I uh, I didn't audition for Amy. I said no to be the new. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't totally offered. Well, I can't say who I said no to. All right. I said no to it anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the premise of that one is is not exactly the same. You'll say uh, anyway, the uh, the thing that I will say, though, about that scene that they cut out which I think was such a funny, dumb bit. As they're all running into the airport, they have a family waiting with a big sign. It's like, welcome back, um, you know, Joneses or whatever they are and they're all the family's all saying like, oh there they are they're coming they're coming and they, they they're all proud and then our family the McAllisters like run through and rip their sign like a uh, like a marathon it's just a funny dumb beat that is not <laughs> included in the film um, and I and, and I think it gives them enough and of course technology plays a big part in how they can't get back and and they're trying their hardest to get back and I think that's the fun thing about it too everyone's on vacation no one's able to get to him they can't get in touch with him um, the phone lines are down, like all this exposition, like it really does a good job. And I think they are good parents. And that ending makes me cry. This movie makes me cry multiple times. Uh, and that ending when she sees him, oh, it, it kills me. It kills me. She plays that so great. Catherine O'Hara. Oh, <laughs> making me, well, even think about it. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean. Every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I am like a huge fan of Catherine O'Hara, who I think was like the Judy Greer mom of the 90s. You know, like if you need like an uh-huh. amazing actress to be the mom and you're like, oh, I don't mind even just seeing like a whole Catherine O'Hara movie. But like, OK, she's a mom. Fine, fine, fine. She's amazing at it. And comparing like this performance with like, say, Beetlejuice, radically different. You know, Beetlejuice is such a heightened, insane sort of like stepmother character. And here... Yeah. The groundedness was what really popped out because I think it'd be easy to turn this into like, I don't know, a Kathy type of mom. I, mean, I don't know why I'm yes. like Kathy, the cartoon from like the 80s and 90s. Of like, act. Oh, yeah. You could make her this cliche, which I think like other people maybe do around her. You know, she calls the cops and they're like, oh, God, here she is. It's the hyper woman wanting to know if her kid is OK. But she plays it, I think, incredibly believably. Like she plays it with a, with a good amount of regret. She plays it with a lot of stress. I mean, her biggest scene is right here where she goes to the airport and she's like, you have to get me a seat. I have been awake for almost 60 hours. I'm tired and I'm dirty. I've been from Chicago to Paris to Dallas to... Where the hell am I? Scrambled. I am trying to get home to my eight-year-old son. And now that I'm this close, you're telling me it's hopeless. I'm sorry. No, 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 no way. This is Christmas. The season of perpetual hope. Mammoth. And I don't care if I have to get out on your runway and hitchhike. If it costs me everything I own, if I have to sell my soul to the devil himself, I am going to get home to my son. Oh, and by the way, that scene I love and it's so reminiscent of one of my other favorite scenes, which is Steve Martin and Edie McClurg when he needs a car and planes, trains, and automobiles. Just like that desperation, that beaten down, like he has captured something I so identify with, which is like airplane car rental culture, like that that frustration with somebody who really is on by the book. And Steve Martin mm-hmm. gets it so many times in Planes, Trains, but that that moment, and you even see her in the airport when she's making those deals, wheeling and dealing with that old lady. Like There is such a great comedic desperation and anger, but hiding the anger, it's great. Yeah. It's beautiful. The, her line delivery, there's that moment where she's bartering everything she owns to get that ticket on the plane with the old woman. And the woman looks at her watch and she was like, is that a Rolex? And she says, like, does it look like a Rolex? Yes, In the most yes. like quiet way where you know it's not a Rolex, but she's very sweet about it. And she was willing to do literally anything at that point. The kind of that 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 lightness with the way she says that is just beautiful. She and that whole sequence is so great. And, the, and when her husband, the old man, comes back and he's like, oh, she's got a bunch of stuff in her bunch of shoe boxes. She doesn't need it. And walks, you know, it. There is such a moment, and I think you see her just completely deflated. And then we bring in the MVP of this film in a movie full of this is an all-star game of performances. And I'm putting I'm putting Uncle Frank in that all-star game. Everyone here is delivering the goods. Um, but I'm gonna give my MVP award to John Candy, who comes in. For scale, apparently, and much to his own chagrin, and apparently was pissed off until 
many years later that he was only paid scale, but comes in. Yeah, and I think does he was this... paid exactly four hundred and fourteen dollars. He was paid less than the I guy mean, who plays the pizza man. It's crazy. John Candy comes in and delivers this. I don't know. I, I just love he's improvising the whole thing. Apparently, the whole thing is him just having fun. But it's it's two Second City alums, you know, Catherine O'Hara and John Candy together just doing this thing that is not like overtly comedic. Like Steve Martin isn't like doing like uh, the Schmengi brothers, who was his Polka King from SCTV, which is another uh, great uh, character. Like he's just doing himself. And there's something about like that lovable John Candy, like this kind of <laughs> failure Polka King, uh, you know, big in Sheboygan, uh, like, you know, big, we have big hits in Sheboygan or whatever. Like, and I just love their interaction together so, so much. It's, it's, it really another moment to ground this film. Like she's just not with a weirdo. He is a little bit, he's not even odd. He's not an odd guy. He's just like, you know, he's helping her out. There's like a Christmas spirit here throughout. I mean, he's dimensional. He's, he's generous. He's very kind to a stranger, but then he has that monologue about how she shouldn't feel like a bad parent because everybody else in the polka band is also a bad parent. And you get the pathos. You get, oh, maybe I don't want to be related to the polka king, but it was nice of him to show up as this Christmas miracle. You're you're beating yourself up there. You know, this happens. This thing happens. You know, you you want to talk about bad parents? Look Look at us. I mean, we're on the road 48, 49 weeks out of the year. We hardly see our families. Uh, you know, Joe over there, gosh, you know, he, he forgets his kids' names half the time. Ziggy over there, he doesn't even, he's never even met his kid. Eddie. Let's just hope none of them write a book about him. Now tell me, have you ever gone on vacation and left your child home? No. No, but I did leave one at a funeral parlor once. Yeah, it was, uh, it was terrible, too. You know, I was all distraught and everything, you know, the wife and I. We left the, the little tyke there in the funeral parlor all day. All day. You know, we, we went back at night when, you know, when we came to our senses. And there he was. Apparently, he was there alone all day with a corpse. Now, he was okay, you know, after six, seven weeks. And I came around, started talking again. Uh, but he's okay. You know, they get over it. Kids are resilient like that. Maybe we shouldn't talk about this. You brought it up. I was just, I you know, trying well, to cheer I'm you up. I'm sorry I did. You know, as a father and an actor and someone like John Candy who's acting a lot, like, you're not always around for all these moments, right? And, and you have both of these people uh, who are married and with kids who... This is, a, this is, I think, the reason why this resonates so much is because they can feel this right i'm not there enough for my family I, i'm a bad parent i'm a this and and i don't know that scene really that scene oh, i love it i mean there's so many moments in this film uh you know so many moments like that yeah and and that the, and that he had to like shoot that scene in 23 hours they really only had him in the schedule for one day and they yeah. just did it they did it in like a complete one day from like I think seven in the morning until like six the, By the next way, morning. Just this. I'm not bitching shot. and moaning about it, but that's not that complicated. Like when I was reading, oh, 23 hours. I've shot, I've directed things. He shot one scene at an airport that was like a two shot with two singles. And then they went to a truck. There's no, there's no camera. It wasn't like, oh my God, they shot that one you know, that one or from True Detective in one day, it's, of course they shot it in one shot, but it's like, it's not that complicated. Okay, well, it must have been complicated. They ran out of time. That's why, like, you never see him drop off Catherine O'Hara or say goodbye to her, or you never see her get in the van. They, like, completely ran out of polka time. So they just had to, like, leave it in the van. 
Leave it in the van. Well, uh, Never say goodbye to that to character. You don't need to see him again. You don't need to see him again. Uh, and I will say this much. There's probably too much hanging around uh, at the craft service table on that one. And that's not a joke about anyone's weight. That's just a, bad, a joke about... I feel like they were bullshitting. Because it, it's not... My, like, it's a great scene, but it's not like a technically... Co- like, how did they do that in 23 hours? There's no even reaction <laughs> shots. You, can, we got a, you, get, you get a, a middle <laughs> shot, you get two singles, you're done. You're in one location, there's a well, white wall in the background. Well, they would have kept up for 23 hours. Don't you think they would have just wanted to go home and sleep if they could? An shooting. A terrible uh, producer, a line producer doesn't know how to schedule a fucking day. Like, uh, that's what I'm going to say. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> they, like, that line producer was like being paid under the table by like Fox to help make this film like a gigantic hit in the long run. I mean, <laughs> isn't that what went crazy with this movie is it was greenlit by Warner Brothers. And mm-hmm. then Warner Brothers was like, okay, we're going to give you, I think, like $14 million and you can't go over this. You can't go over this right. budget. And um, John Hughes was like, we got that. And they're like, if you go over this budget, we have the right to pull the film. And they did. Like three weeks before the film was supposed to start, they called him on a Friday and they're like, you're over budget. You're not You're not bringing this budget down. We're not going to do this film. And they put it in turnaround. And John Hughes had already made some low-key calls to Fox. And over the weekend, by Monday, Fox was like, we'll take it. We'll buy this little film off your hands. And then it becomes the number one box office hit for like 12 weeks. Don't you think there's maybe some like John Candy? I'll take my time getting this shot ready. We'll set yeah, it up. Yeah, I think it's I think it's John Candy going, you pay me $413. I'm going to take an hour and a half to get from my trailer to the set. I don't know, like, you know, like that kind of energy <laughs> uh, because, but I mean, but all these things paid off. Like, you know, the John Williams score was expensive. All these things, everyone was working you know, look, they couldn't afford Daniel Stern. They wanted to do a scene where the furnace chased Kevin up the stairs. And they're like, that would be like a million bucks. You know, did you know? Oh, my God, this is the crazy. Did you know that they literally, you know, they didn't have like CGI back then. They literally paid a dude who lived in his parents' basement to do the BB gun shot into Marv's head. He hand painted every frame of the scene. Like it was like a crazy. like that's how like DIY this movie was. Wait, I can't believe they didn't just shoot Marv because from what I've heard about the stunts, everything else was like, well, they'll just suck it up. I mean, because this, you're right, hand-painted because this is happening in a world that's pre-CGI. And so the stunts that are happening, they couldn't just like, you know, now you're like walking upstairs, you do a big ice fall. They've got harnesses on you, right? You fall down, they get rid of the yeah. wires. It's very easy and safe. But this is 1990. They couldn't just like erase the wires. So they have this stunt team who's like falling down for real. And like all the time they're making the last part of this movie, Christopher Columbus is just freaking out because he thinks like people are dying. He's like, I, mean, I think that yeah. man just died. Oh, good. He's up. I think that man just died. Oh, good. He's up. Well, I mean, because they, it's it also like the torture. most dangerous. It's dangerous stunts because they're not like they're not like a car hit. And, and I know that you're really laughing like, well, a car hits less dangerous. I think it is because like it's falling downstairs. And when I did this, I may have talked about this already. I'll talk about it briefly. When I was on Black Monday uh, in the first season, my character falls down a flight of stairs and I was talking to my stunt man and I was like, well, how, like, how are you going to do it? And he's like, oh, I'm going to fall down the stairs. And I'm like, oh, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, I'm just going to, that you can't fake it. And I'm like, oh, and he fell down the stairs a metal batch of stairs and he didn't tuck his head the right way and fucking gashed his head open on a steel bar at the end of the stairs. This guy's awesome. He was my stunt man. Uh, he has and will continue to be my stuntman. He's great. Um, but 
like he was more concerned about how did the fall look. It looked amazing. Uh, and he was like watching at the monitor with me while holding a compress on his head, waiting to go to the hospital. Like, like there is, but these are the dangerous stunts. Like a car hit has so much more control over it. But falling downstairs, slipping, falling on your ass, like you can put on these gator backs, which kind of protect your spine and stuff like that. And that's and people do wear that. But these are the ones where people get hurt, you know, because there's a lot of just falls and kicks and, you know, uh, yeah. and, and, mean, you know, and, and holding falls on down so much. I think the, the guy that they had be his stuntman um, was a man named Troy Brown, who was a bull rider. Like he was just wow. a professional bull rider. So they knew he knew how to fall. I think they also had a hard time finding a stuntman for Pesci because he's such an unusual shape and size. They're like, ah, panicking. They did find a 30-year-old stuntman for uh, Kevin. He was 30. (laughs) Stuntman. That's crazy. But still, I mean, there's a lot of practical magic that went into the way that they did this. You know, the scene where where Stern falls down the stairs, it was just way too hard to get that one stair fall. So they had a painter paint... um, like a slide, basically. He took a giant piece of wood, he laid it on top of the stairs, and then he painted it to look three-dimensional so that they would actually look Whoa. like real stairs. So when the Stern stuntman goes down those stairs, he's actually just sliding on his back, but it looks like it's really happening. Interesting. I mean, isn't that amazing? I love that kind of stuff. I love that the nail, which to me, I think the nail is like the worst part, that the nail is just like a spring-loaded nail, you know? That they're using neon tubes to make the doorknob look so hot. Which, by the way, I mean, the McAllister's are they're like doorknob rich. They're so rich that their doorknob has an M in it. Like how how much money do you have to have that you're like, <laughs> I need our doorbell or to be monogrammed with my own initial. Yeah, as I said, like look, this is I do believe that John Hughes has warped our brains about what rich is, because every one of his people were rich. Yeah, for real. And you know, while we're still talking about the stunts though, that's I think what really caught me off guard about this film on the rewatch is the torture part doesn't really happen until the last 25 minutes yeah. of the movie. You know, pretty much all of the movie is Kevin learning how to use fabric softener. And then with half an hour to go, he learns his house is going to, going to be broken into. And then he sets it all up. He goes to church. He does a bunch of other stuff. And then only in that last minute is it just like torture, 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 torture. Right, which I think makes the movie better, right? Because it's sort of like you... Like you're more committed to the it's it's like an old west film like that's how I felt like this is like high noon. <laughs> <laughs> he's like somebody help please help. But yeah, no, he's like he, you know it's like it has it has except the, instead of trying to get the cops to help and anybody to help he just doesn't call them and he just does it on his own. It's like if high noon was about I don't want my community around still I got this. But, you know, but the idea that I don't I think he wants help. He doesn't know how to get it. You know, he's not trying to actively not have people help him. I think he's trying to not. I think there's an element where he's trying not to get his parents in trouble, too. Right. You know, he's you know he realizes something has gone on. And I think he also feels at fault for it. Like his parents, he woke up and his parents have disappeared. I mean, they don't again. It's there. And I think that that's where his mental state is. And I think he's freaked out. He's like, am I a warlock? Like, have I created this thing? You know, but that's yeah. That's true. Like and I guess he doesn't yeah. count, trust the cops because he did see that Joe Pesci was dressed like a cop. Maybe that's why he doesn't call the policeman. But I think well, there's yes. an argument to be made that that the wet boys would not wet be bandits. So, the wet bandits. I'm just going to call them the wet boys. That the wet Don't naps the wet would boys. not be that bad if Kevin wasn't such a psychopath. Because really, like, all they want to do is they want to break into his house and they want to take his VCR. All they want to do 
All they, All they do- want, they want to flood his house and steal everything in it. Did you see the damage they did to the okay. other house, Amy? So does the Grinch. So does the Grinch. We even cut from them talking about stealing to a video of the Grinch. Their I hearts could be fixed. I cannot believe that you're saying, what, okay. Okay, what, what's your, wait, okay. what do you All think right. that, I'm what saying you think there's you a big done? difference between property damage and damage to the public body, damage oh, to, to the physical form. And it's. Kevin, you know that I'm a stand-your-ground no. person. I'm a stand-your-ground uh, person, and I will always be behind Kevin. Okay. If they get in their space. But they weren't even planning on it. The thing is that Kevin is like, I'm going to bring violence to this interaction. And he basically radicalizes the wet boys, the wet bandits, into becoming violent. You know, they're not going in there to kill a kid. They're going in there to get a, 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 to get a VCR. They are you keep on saying get a VCR. Why, okay. If they're not violent criminals, they have three options. One, they don't have to rob that house. Two, after the first interaction, they could leave. But no, what they do is, let's press our luck. We're not afraid of a kid. Now, if they got him, what would they have done? Tortured him? Would it have become like that home invasion movie with Naomi Watts? Like tied him up to a chair? Funny game? It wouldn't be that bad. No, and then third, they could have at any point, at any point, call, like again, called it off they're greedy they pushed the limits and they had malintent they were going to harm a kid even putting a they kid were in not a chair to harm him the, they just Amy, want to steal if you're gonna tie a kid up with duct tape over this you know i mean if the mccallisters are that rich if they are the one percent what do we know about these poor okay. wet bandits okay oh here's what i'll say this do not take the side up we need to this redistribute this is not a wealthy this kid this is not a wealthy kid <laughs> taking down uh people who can't afford like all right so you're telling oh, actually, me. Actually, it is. I mean, think about it. Kevin is already a rich kid. He has yes. money he didn't earn that he steals from his own brother. The pizza guy shows up, right? Mm-hmm. The pizza guy gives him his pizza. Great. He has the money to pay for it. Also great. He pays the pizza guy. But then he decides to torture the pizza guy by making him think he's getting shot with machine gun- gunfire just because. Okay. Doesn't have to do it. He Doesn't have to made do it to this mistake. minimum wage worker. He, made he just a decides mistake. to scare him for no reason. He made no a reason. mistake. He was trying to figure out you the VCR. Play, uh, no. You could play the angels with filthy mouths. Dirty faces. And just be like, leave it at the door. Uh, Which is fine. He goes over the line. And then, okay, so when the wet bandits get mad and they finally do capture him, listen to what they say they're finally going to do to this kid now that they have him. All right, this is due to him. Put his balls in like motor oil, right? No, they list off literally everything that he already did to them. They just want to give him back what he did. He has radicalized these people into violence. He's a child. He's a child. Jeffrey Dahmer was a child at one point. Okay, well, okay. Are you, so, Amy, you're going on record saying that it is it would have been it would have been more proper for a child to be have a home invasion where he was tied to a chair. Who knows what it, when he would have been released from that chair, pissed himself, gone hungry, whatever, while they robbed his house. That's what you you think that that would be less traumatic for this boy to be tied up in his own filth for question mark days. Well. A doctor did watch this film and go over uh, all of the injuries that happened to Avoiding the question, Pesci. yes. Avoiding well, if we're the gonna question. Rank it, if we're going to rank it like this, 
he looked at everything that Kevin McAllister did to these guys. He said, okay, well, the iron to the face would have caused a blowout fracture. It definitely would have caused serious disfigurement. He said, the doorknob, if it's that hot, then it's been heated to over 750 degrees Fahrenheit, which means crippling. He would never be able to use that hand again. Uh, Also, his hair, Joe Pesci's hat gets set on fire. Listen to how long he screams when when he has a blowtorch on his head. (sighs) A dead kid. He is burned, not just that his hat catches on fire and he puts it off in the snow and everything's fine. He burns away his fabric. He burns away his hair. He burns away part of his you know scalp. I mean? That is a fatal injury. And he just manages to keep alive a little bit You know, bit you longer. actually are. You're actually, so, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, Kevin you, could poop his pants. He was pooping in his pants like five years before this because he okay, was a you kid. Actually, he could you poop actually, in them actually, again. He's just a you, flashback. You've, you've, actually, you've actually swayed me. I uh, Now I'm looking at Sophie's choice in a totally different way. She should have just totally. Yeah, you got it. I, <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and, you know, and for Miles, uh, she, why didn't she just want to make out with Anthony Perkins and psycho? Like, oh, uh, you know, like, like, yeah, I'm getting a whole different idea here. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying Kevin made them bad. No, boy. No, they were already bad. They were flooding houses for no reason. No reason to flood those houses. Oh, my God. It's just water. Oh, wow. And then you're going to come home to a house uh, wrecked. You're right. I don't have a basement. Okay, but I do have to say this. Have you heard that this movie was sued because there was a French film that said it totally ripped it off that came out the year before? Have you heard about this lawsuit? No, I've not. No. Okay. So in 1989, a French film came out that was called Dial Code Santa Claus. Let me tell you the plot. Okay. So there's a super rich kid, super, super rich, lives in this gigantic mansion, like gables everywhere. It looks like an estate out of Wuthering Heights or something. Mm -hmm. He's French. His mom owns a department store and he is... At the start of the film, a sadistic, war-obsessed little kid. He's built, like, trap doors all in the house because he thinks war is always happening. His dog gets caught in, like, these trap doors. He has these secret passages. He lives in this fantasy uh-huh. world. And anyway, what happens is he has an early, like, internet okay. from 1989. Some sort of early phone service. He talks to this, like, sad, uh, I don't know, vagabond on the street. The vagabond gets a job as a department store Santa in his mom's department store. And then his mom fires him because she thinks he's a little bit creepy. So then he figures out where the mom lives and he decides to invade this kid's mansion while the mom is at work on Christmas. The mom spends the whole movie like trying to drive home in the snow. And the kid builds these sadistic traps all over the house that like torture this man dressed as Santa Claus. And so I watched this movie as my due diligence this week. And I was like, okay, I need to see... How much is Home Alone really based on Dial Code Santa Claus? Because it was hard to tell. The film didn't really get an American release here. It's only been out slightly now. It's on Shudder. It's actually not good. Like the first half is great and then it gets bad. But yeah, sadistic little blonde kid torturing Home Invader. It's interesting that these two things came out right next to You think that John Hughes stole this idea? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he's, I think it wouldn't surprise me if he had heard about it and didn't watch it. Right? Like, okay. he heard, oh, that's a fun idea. Uh, right? Like, it's something. Hmm. It's too weird. It's right after the other. All right. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like John Hughes takes ideas that other people have done 
or other ideas that people have talked about doing or somebody has done and not good enough and makes them so much better. Like, so, you know, the way that he wrote, it just seemed like he would get an idea and, and write it over a weekend or write it over a couple of weeks. And, and, um, and the amount of the ideas that he has, I just feel like, yeah, he wrote I don't in like nine John, days or something. Yeah. I don't think that John Hughes is the type of guy that is like, I'm, because he didn't really work within a studio system. Like, I don't think he was like, I got to turn out another hit. Like, I remember I worked with his former assistant. And she's like, when you go into his office, his walls were lined with these scripts, all unproduced scripts. He just wrote to write because he loved writing so much. And um, after Curly Sue, he you know kind of effectively retired because he just had a terrible experience on that. And, um, and he just continued to write movies. But never make them because he realized the joy was in writing them. So I don't I don't think that John Hughes was under the gun. It wasn't like we need to do this thing or I need to make this movie like he made Uncle Buck. He loved Macaulay Culkin. He's like, I need to make a movie for him. And here's a fun idea. Like and then that was kind of the idea, like all based out of that interrogation scene from Uncle Buck. He's like, all right, this is something. And um, and then they went off and, and made this movie. I feel like that's enough of an idea for John Hughes, because I think, you know, I'd be very surprised. I'd be very, yeah. very surprised. I mean, I do have to say, as much as I've been talking about the tortures that Macaulay Culkin puts Joe Pesci and Stern through, there is nothing in this film as dark as the opening attack scene in Dial Code Santa Claus, which is where the kid is hiding under a table because he thinks real Santa Claus is here and he's so excited. He sees this guy come down the chimney and the Santa Claus, um, the first thing he does is kill his dog. Oh, God. And so this kid is under a table watching Santa Claus that he believes be the real Santa Claus kill his dog. That's like the best the movie gets. It's like really screwed up and wonderful. And and then it gets chaotic again. But yeah, there's something about this age where it's like you can't quite tell like how much Macaulay Culkin believes in the fantasy of Santa. You know, like how I I think he does, but he's just about to stop, right? Like any minute. He's got to be the last person. His older brother's going to tell him any minute that it's all wrong. I know, I know. But he's still so sweet. You know, he believes, like you see on that face when his older brother is telling like the level of the the legend of the shovel murderer next door. Who's he? You ever heard of South Bend Shovel Slam? No. That's him. Back in 58... Murdered his whole family and half the people on his block with the snow shovel. Been hiding out in this neighborhood ever since. Well, if he's a shovel slayer, how come the cops don't arrest him? Not enough evidence to convict. They never found the bodies. But everyone around here knows he did it. Now it'll just be a matter of time before he does it again. It is, I think, the strength of Macaulay Culkin in this film because I will say I don't think this performance is quite as good as I remember it being but I think his strength is when you look at his face you just see him absorbing right like yeah. his his open mouth kind of wow that he does and and you believe in that kid you know you want that kid to be okay even though he is a psychopath and like there's stuff that Macaulay does in this movie as a child performer that I think is a little bit grating you know he he waggles his eyebrows a lot like it feels like he picks up a lot of stuff from john candy or like even maybe john hughes's idea of what a kid is still into like i mean what kid really wants to watch like johnny carson although i guess he does put johnny carson on he falls asleep but he has like a little bit of like a vaudeville stickiness to the way he moves that seems not quite 1990s yeah but then i think i don't know i went back and i watched a bunch of old interviews with macaulay culkin from this period 
And he is kind of like that. Like, I think he was kind of trained to be like an old old soul who hung out with John Candy and had this kind of like, but bum I mean, listen to him here on Arsenio Hall. <laughs> How does it feel to have the number one movie in the country? Ah, it's great. <laughs> Because you've been in a lot of movies, but this is the one. Hmm? And, and, and I, I guess you were in Jacob's Ladder? Yes, I was. Uh, now, what was that movie about? Um, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Did you understand it? No. Join the club. Oh. <laughs> I mean, what has this movie changed for you growing up and now knowing the stories about what it was like to grow up Culkin and to have a dad who was like, feared across Hollywood for being such a jerk. You know, I don't know that much about it, honestly. There's like a little bit, you know, like they had seven kids and a lot of them went into the business and the parents were never married. So it made things really messy that they were not married, but had these seven kids who were both making millions of dollars. I mean, Macaulay Culkin's salary bump between Home Alone and Home Alone 2 is huge. He goes from like $100,000 to $4.5 million. And he's so successful as a child actor that his dad starts throwing clout around that doesn't really belong to his dad you know it belongs to his son but he's like basically besmirching his son's reputation and making it so people don't want to work with him like there's this whole thing that happens with the home alone 2 sequel where uh kit Culkin, his dad says you know what last minute i'm not going to put my kid in the home alone movie in this new home alone sequel if you don't give him the lead in the good son that movie about like kind of a twisted, that bad seed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that movie had already been cast. That movie was about to start shooting. It was like three weeks before that film was to start shooting. And Macaulay Culkin's dad is like, no, you're putting my kid in that or you're not getting another Home Alone too." So they had to fire that kid. They had to push back the shooting of that film a year. Like 60 crew members lost their jobs because Kit Culkin was throwing his weight around because he wanted to like just show he could. Wow. And so you're this little kid and you're growing up and your name is getting ruined in this business by your dad. And you have the sense that all of these adults are fighting over how much you're worth and like what money you can bring in. And so it makes perfect sense to me that like you start to resent the business when you're really little. I mean, like, yeah, apparently the story is, is like he says today that his dad burned enough bridges that there are still people in this business who won't sit down and work with him. And like, when he shot Richie Rich, which was really like his last one from this period of his life, after Richie Rich wrapped, he just said, I hope you guys made all your money. There's no more money coming back from me. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to eat Cocoa Pebbles and I'm going to go to high school and I'm going to figure out the rest of my life. Wow. He was just done. And I think now when he talks about it, he says he looks back on the money that he inherited from doing all of this, I guess inherited is like a weird word. He feels like it was, it happened to a different kid, really. Right. Like some little kid worked really hard and he got all of this money from it. It's a really interesting disengagement. Yeah, no, I mean, I can imagine like what you remember as a child and, and, uh, and if he went off and actually got out of that system, which it seems like he did, it probably feels like a whole different life. Um, I think when you talk about this kid and who he really is versus who we think he is or what we think the perfect life is. Because as McAllister's have the perfect house, we probably also think that Macaulay Culkin had the perfect childhood. He got to be in all these great movies. You start to create these stories and about people based on these assumptions, which also 
you know, ties into this movie in a, in a major way. You know, like this idea that like we assume so much about people, the way that they look and the way that they act. And and I, I think that one of the, the interesting things about this movie, too, is the way they tie in this this neighbor character. You talked about it just a little while ago about the story of the guy who killed his family with his shovel and and how that shovel comes into play in the in the third act in a in a in a big way, uh, probably the least aggressive piece of violence in the entire movie. When Marley, uh, aka give it up to Jacob Marley, uh, you know, uh, comes in and and saves the day. You know, this idea that like what we assume somebody is and versus what they are are often two different things. So again, this movie is just laying down some truth all over the board. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, speaking of truth, like Macaulay Culkin has said that one of the things he's had to deal with is that because he got famous as a kid and he's in that kind of weird Venn diagram of everybody knows your name, but you hide a lot. Right. Which I totally understand. I want to say really clearly, like all of my empathy is with Macaulay Culkin and I I like it when he does act. Um, That he's had to put up with just constant rumors about his own death. The bizarre things that people have, uh, have you heard about yourself? Oh, uh, I die all the time. That's... (laughs) Congratulations. I know, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm just I'm happy you're here. I know. I'm just a specter right now. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, must be awful. Uh, you know, it, it, it can be. It's, I, I, always, like, I used to see it as fun until it would affect other people. But for the most part, like my, uh, the first time it happened, it was my lawyer called me up. And he said, I was like 15, 16. And he says, uh, hey, Mac, is this you? And I go, yeah. He goes, oh, okay, just checking. Just CNN just said you were dead. <laughs> All right, bye. Talk to you later, buddy. And Thank you like, for cool. calling. Yep, yep. Made go. my day. Thanks, yep, pal. Yep. Appreciate so, yeah. it. So now I can, like, I can set my watch to it. It happens like at least once or twice a year. Oh, that's I, you know, awful. I hit that great strike zone of, uh, of just reasons why Isn't they want... bizarre? I don't know. People want to kill me. No, no, that's not true. I just think you just, uh, you lived a very interesting life and you're part of all of our lives. We love you. And we grew up with you, so we want to make sure you're safe. <laughs> Make sure you're, you're still here. We yeah. love you. You want to swaddle you're me? Real. Yeah, yeah I do. Just, like, just swaddle me. I'll be okay. Papa? Which to me makes it so interesting the moments that he decides he wants to re-engage with this part of his life. You know, like, because everybody will still ask him about it. Every interview you do, somebody has to make a reference to it. And I, I think so much about, like, actors getting typecast, about, like, Jamie Lee Curtis saying that when she dies... She knows that the first line of her headline of her obituary will read like Halloween star dies. You mm-hmm. know, you get known as this one thing. And like to see him, you know, put a foot into it and then put it back out. Like recently he was invited to do this like YouTube show where they were going to play all of his old video games that were inspired by Home Alone. And when you watch it, you get the sense that like Macaulay Culkin never played any of these games and that right. he was just like, okay, fine. What are they? And he starts playing them with this guy and he hates him. And he has this moment where he's like kind of grappling with like what it's like to have your image out there. Right. Why is everyone in the entire airport trying to kill you? What did Kevin do to instigate all this? I mean, maybe because they had me pelting innocent businessmen baseballs? Here comes Kevin McAllister. He gives him a big old concussion with a fucking baseball right to the dome. Look at that. Bam. I'm shooting a poor balloon salesman and stealing his balloons to get past the TSA. You're making me a fucking asshole. It's the worst one of all. Wow, people ask me why I'm so angry. It's because these games ruined my childhood. Your childhood? I mean, it's bad enough that you have one bad game based on you, but what about ten? Is, is this how you live? I mean, it's every boy's dream to be in a video game, and then it turns into a fucking nightmare. 
A child nightmare. All right, just let it all out. Let it out. Go for the nerd rant. This game is like poop from a, a buffalo butt. Diarrhea. It's got to be diarrhea. Just go for it. Okay, I got it. I'd rather do a human centipede with the wet bandits. Marvin in my mouth, Harry in my ass. I'll turn them into the sticky bandits. That is, oh man, and that is so bizarre. It's like, to think about that, like that idea that like, yeah, you you gave up all this stuff as a child. I mean, we're, you know, I was, it's interesting. I was going to, for this episode, interview uh, my two kids about Home Alone. And I was saying to June, I was like, I think I'm going to do that. And she's like, no, don't do it. Because we've made a very conscious choice not to put um, our kids on camera in any way. Like, you know, occasionally they'll pop into something uh, that we've done live and, and, you know, we have no control over that, but we, we don't put them out and no offense to anybody who chooses to do that. It's just sort of what we've decided to do because, you know, it's, it's this control of an image or it's this thing, not that anyone would do anything with it or whatever, but we just want to have, protect that a little bit. And, um, and it's hard, you know, it's a, it's a tough decision to grow up old and you think, oh, I didn't really get to weigh in on that. And now it's out mm-hmm. there for the rest of my life. Yeah. Like, I mean, there is zero judgment coming in it for me as a person who doesn't have kids. Yeah. But I realized that my friend's kids are photographed so much more than I was ever photographed as a child. You know, and like my parents yeah. loved me, but we didn't always have a camera out. You know, it wasn't like I felt like my whole life was spent smiling for a camera. Maybe I'd be oh, yeah. more photogenic if I had learned how to smell for a camera when I was a kid, but I didn't. But yeah, like my friends, you know, every day there's like cute pictures of their kids. And I wonder what that's like to be photographed that endlessly. Well, it's, it becomes, yeah, it, like I can literally show you a picture from like the first sonogram to today. Like, you know, that's a crazy place to be in. Uh, but that at least is personal. I mean, that, you know, like there's something interesting about that. Like I love looking at my family's pictures. Um but they're not out on the internet for everyone to see either. And this is like, you know, he's not only, you know, there's dolls made of Macaulay Culkin, there's coloring books, there are, you know, there's everything imaginable. He is a, he was the face of something. He was the kid that was in the, on the 1999 VHS tape that was sold in my supermarket, which is a big deal. Like that is a big deal for most people to walk into a supermarket at that point in your life, you know, and, and be able to have this connection to him. But, you know, I remember, seeing that reaction to like the, the people in Blair Witch, when you're in something that is so iconic so quickly, it's hard to escape. It's hard to escape. And, and I think you see a lot of people trying to escape that, you know, whether it's the hangover or, but it's, uh, or something like this, you know, when it becomes a cultural hit, that's why you feel like Daniel Craig is even getting, I don't want to be James Bond. I don't want to be associated with the thing, but you you become one it's like almost like you put yourself into like you inject yourself into the mainstream and you have to like allow america to take you in like that like the way that matt leblanc is forever joey even though he's a really talented actor and he's great in episodes and there is this he will always be a little bit of that and that's what we talked about with daniel stern he'll always be a little bit of that um you know and it's funny then because like the person who i think knew that Home Alone was going to be a huge hit before anybody really did, before John Hughes or Christopher Columbus even did, was George Lucas. Interesting. Because the story that I heard is that George Lucas saw a trailer of this movie and he just knew. And he told somebody in the crew, I can't remember who, but he was like, you've got a hit. Like, I saw that trailer. This is going to be massive. This is going to be bigger than you think it is. And he's like, I think his line was something like, sometimes a movie is blessed 
and you can't change it. You can't make it worse. You can't make it better. Like this movie is going to be what it is and it's going to be huge and you guys have to prepare. Wow. 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 Which, you know, is interesting because like then we talked about this a little bit last week, you know, about independent films and rollouts and like, how do you, how do you release a film in a way that's good the way that A24 does to where their films don't disappear? I didn't realize because to me, Home Alone was just this like gigantic juggernaut phenomenon that seemed like it had always been there and would always be there that they actually did give Home Alone kind of a modified rollout. They didn't release it big across like 3000 screens the way you would imagine that they would have. As big as it was, they made it very small at the beginning. I think the first weekend or two, they kept it in tiny little theaters because they were thinking strategically, like if we get this movie to sell out, which it did, if we get this movie to sell out in these few theaters around the country and people can't go see it, you know, they show up and they can't go. It creates this buzz. And it also means that all of our screenings of Home Alone are packed, like every single seat is filled. And when you're in a comedy room like that in a theater and every seat is filled and everybody has that anticipation, like you got in to see the movie that people else, other people couldn't get into. You're like ready to laugh. You know, there's something in that room. Yeah. And it worked like that first weekend of screenings of like elbow to elbow, people losing their minds, feeling like they're part of something lucky to be there. The way that Bridesmaids even felt like I remember like getting into a sold out Bridesmaids that first week and it released it turns it into a phenomenon. Everybody's talking about it. Guess what I saw? It was so awesome. Being in that room was amazing. You have to go see it in the theater. It's so smart the way they did that. Yeah, I think that was a tool that people used to use. Word of mouth was so big. I remember Superbad like opened up at like three or four on the box office chart and then moved up to one. We never see that anymore. Um, We want to get the max amount of people out that first weekend and then that's it. And, you know, I look at something and I'm biased a little bit, but like something like Longshot with uh, Seth and Charlize and, and how great that movie was received. But, you know, it came out the second weekend of the Avengers film. And, and sometimes if you, if you can't get that first weekend, the movie just keeps on going down. It never goes up anymore. Um, no, it's true. And they actually have now started to call that phenomenon what happened to something like Longshot getting home alone, which mm-hmm. is you open when there's still something taking up so much bandwidth at the box office that you don't you never get that number one, that you never get that credit. Yeah. Because when home alone is number one at the box office for twelve weeks. Wow. Twelve weeks. You know, nobody else can get a foot in. And so that has become a thing. Like, oh, well, you opened up against like age of Ultron, you know, you've been home yeah. alone. It's so interesting. And, you know, and, and again, this movie is on that chart because I think it appeals to family. I think it, it, it's a big movie. It's, it's really funny. It's broad. It's got great actors in it. I think that the sequel for many years I viewed as being a less than stellar sequel, but I've now come around to think that maybe even the sequel is a little bit better uh, in the sense that they really do a great job. It's the aliens of Alien. Like they really do a great <laughs> job of figuring out how to expand it without rip- doing uh, so many things that are incredibly repetitious, but they do bring back the things that you want to see. Uh, Tim Curry is amazing in that movie as well, but that's a whole different episode. Um, but I think what this movie does at the end of the day, and I've been saying it since the beginning of this episode, these little turns, these little moments that all come together to make it more grounded. And that's the acting, it's the set design, it's the graphic design, it's the music, and it's the it's the director going... Yeah, John Hughes wanted to do slapstick and and Warner Brothers style cartoon stuff, but I wanted to make sure there was emotion there. And I know we just talked about Marley a second ago, but you know that whole ending 
where you see Marley with his family, that was all uh, that was all Christopher Columbus because John Hughes wanted the movie to end when, you know, the dad comes home and is like, what did you do? And he's like, oh, just hung around the house, freeze frame music. And Columbus is like, no, we, we, we need that ending. We need that. And, he, and like when often asked, like, what did you add to the movie? He's like, I added that. Um, and I think that if you look at that and you take it back, you go, oh, this is this is why this movie works. It's just not a kid running around beating up men uh it's it's a movie that has heart it hits all the 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 perfect kind of christmas tropes to it um and i think that that is a defining thing of john hughes so i feel like even if his original script uh didn't have that completion of marley or all these like little beats that they may have fleshed out more on the set like they had enough of the setup like marley was set up and then columbus paid it off and i feel like all these moments john candy had enough of a setup to then pay off that scene, right? You know, the the movie was as it was, and then John Williams came in, and I think that score elevates the movie in a way that makes it a little bit more iconic. Like everybody, and I think that's the, the the sign of a great film, a great baseline that everyone can add to and make better. That's why this movie is up there for 12 weeks. That's why people are synonymous. That's why these things exist forever and ever. And uh, yeah, I I think it's it's funny that we just celebrated its 30th anniversary. November was its 30th anniversary, November 2020. And uh and to know that this movie is still being watched just right now on Disney Plus and my kids are watching it and loving it for the first time is is pretty special. But I do have to say as we're talking about the ending, you know what we don't see that I think was such a trope of a John Hughes type of comedy? What? We don't ever see McCoy Culkin cleaning the house when this is all over. Oh, gosh. Yeah, you don't have that. By the way, I was thinking about this last night. I was like, like, is this risky business for kids? Uh, you know, I had that like, oh, you know, there's an element to that. But yeah, you miss that that ending. I like that. Risky business is also Chicago. Is there some yeah, is, exactly. is Chicago just where the real kids hang? Yeah, I think it might be. I love risky business. I just want to say that right now. And that risky business is such a different movie than people picture it is. It's not just like oh, I'm sliding 100%. around on the floor. It is like a really interesting movie about capitalism as this cocktail. But I know that people out there didn't like it, Amy. So what? give it to me. Give it to me. Oh, uh, well, you know who didn't like it? And this is going to be heartbreaking. It's our buddy, Roger Ebert. Uh, Roger Ebert said, you know, if Home Alone had limited itself to the things that might possibly happen to a forgotten eight-year-old, I think I would have liked it more. What I didn't enjoy okay, was course. the subplot involving the burglars who are immediately spotted by little Kevin and made the targets subplot? of his the cleverness. The subplot? The plot! It, Sorry. it really isn't a plot. They don't show up till the end. Um, there. It, from the from frame one, the they are set okay, up. Okay, from frame one, Pesci's there, but I, uh, I think he's got half a point. Uh, he says, a real kid would probably be, probably be more frightened than this movie character and would probably cry. He also might Jesus try calling Christ. someone or asking a neighbor for help. But in the contrived world of this movie, the only neighbor is an old coot who is rumored to be the snow shovel murderer. It's and the called magical work. realism. The plot is it, so Ebert. implausible that it makes it hard for us to really care about the plight of the kid. But he does say that he likes Macaulay Culkin's performance and says he's such a confident and gifted little actor that I'd like to see Boo. him in a story I could care about more. Boo! The good son. I'm sure he loved the good son. Well, do you want to hear the one from Entertainment Weekly? It's even meaner. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, this is Owen Gleiberman. He says, John Hughes started out making fresh, witty entertainment for teenagers, but in the last few years, he has turned into a brazenly cynical audience manipulator. 
Hughes can't resist turning Home Alone into a sadistic festival of adult bashing. The movie devolves into an egregious Three Stooges pain fest. We're meant to giggle and clap along with Kevin as the crooks get their heads singed with blow torches and walk barefoot on glass. Then, since this is also the holiday season, we get incongruous scenes of Christmas spirit, family reunion toastiness, and also a bit in which the lonely old man next door is reunited with his family who were wheeled in from out of nowhere for a teary climax. By then, Hughes is pulling our strings as though he'd never learned to do anything else. Fuck you. Fuck you, Owen. <laughs> oh my God. Fuck you. Fuck you all. But I mean, I, I think wow, there is Wow, why a, don't you get a blowtorch about it? Uh, but you know what? I think that there is a thing of like, you have to understand what these movies are. And look, and the, and the legacy of the movies stand out. Like, there's so many of these movies. And I, I think that, honestly, that, that was kind of the way I viewed it as a kid when I saw it, too. I was a little bit older, and I was like, this is stupid. This is dumb. And I think the benefit, I think that John Hughes is able to give a thesis statement of a film that seems dumb and broad and then always brings it home in a little bit more of a, a real way. And as I've gotten older, I've appreciated certain elements of the films uh, that are you know, a little bit more adult than I think I got originally. I don't know. Uh, highs and lows. Uh, I guess the question is, Amy, does this go up to space? I mean, that's that's the question. I don't think it does. But you know what? I don't think it needs to. I think it has its place here on Earth, mm-hmm. here in the grocery store checkout aisle. I think this movie will sacrifice nothing from staying in the terrestrial plane in which it has been treasured and beloved for three decades. You know what? I I am in agreement with you. I don't think that this movie needs uh, that kind of uh, alien placement, but I do love it so much. It will watch it uh, again and again. And, you know, uh, last weekend in L.A., they even had like a little Nero's pop up. It continues to kind of give back. And, uh, you know, for all of those who were wondering, it, you know, it gives back a lot. But Elvis was not in this movie. There's been a popular rumor for a long time that Elvis was in this film because that guy doesn't say. even look like Elvis. I, don't I know it's that. weird, but it was debunked. That actor is actually uh, or a Gary Richard Grott. Uh, we won't even get into it because it's not even true. But uh, I wanted to just give you a couple of things before we end here. Um, OK. What if the dad was these are some of the people that were considered. What if the dad was Al Pacino? No. Or perhaps Martin Sheen? Or perhaps Michael Douglas? Those are three no. of the actors. Uh, Buzz uh, was rumored uh, Joaquin Phoenix rumored oh. to play Buzz. Interesting. Maybe. Although I think the actor who plays Buzz, Devin Ratray, which is just such a good name for like a bullying older brother. Yeah. I think he has the perfect bullying older brother. I, I love him. It also... The genius of his performance goes beyond just him looking terrifying. I love this little throwaway line here where he's numbering the reasons why he's not worried about Kevin. And then this is uh, not worried. And while we're talking about Buzz, uh, another actor that would have played Buzz maybe was Keanu Reeves. But we talked a lot about stunt work, but there was one stunt person we didn't bring up at all. And that is Buzz's girlfriend. You know, uh, Buzz's girlfriend, this is a fact I just found out this year that um, Christopher Columbus thought it was too cruel to make fun of a girl like that. So they took the art director's son and dressed him up like a girl. So it would be less mean for Kevin to look at that picture and go, woof. I want to say how much I respect that. As a young child who had a mullet I... and felt really hideous, thank you for not picking on a girl. It was hard enough having people say Chelsea Clinton was ugly. I appreciate that. I do too. And I will end this with these three people that could have been Daniel Stern's character. Christopher Lloyd turned it down. 
Michael Richards potentially turned it down. That would have been really interesting to me. Hmm. And here's the one that will blow your mind. Hmm. Jeremy Irons. Could you imagine Jeremy Irons and Joe Pesci as the bad guys? I mean, that would have been a thrill. (laughs) Jeremy Irons. He is. He's pretty terrifying. I I mean, mean, I had to get coffee with him for an interview a couple like a year ago. And he's very lovely in person, but he is he has that look that would scare me to death as a child, I, which I, I think agree. this movie understands that. I mean, the movie even makes the Santa Claus on their front door look scary. Uh, I <laughs> I like that a lot. Oh, well, Amy, this has been amazing to chat about this movie that has come into my life in such a major way. Um, next week, we're going to be ending our our family, our fucked up family uh miniseries with an audience choice and you want to reveal what that audience choice is uh you guys are some sick twisted cineasts and i love it the audience has voted for dog tooth dog tooth that's right i've never seen it but i know that i should be afraid (laughs) of it uh should we listen to the trailer well it's greek but sure on the first specimen ένα πλάσμα σαν αυτό που εισέβαλε σήμερα στον κήπο των διαμέλυση. Το ζώο που μας απειλεί λέγεται γάτα. Είναι το πιο επικίνδυνο ζώο που υπάρχει. Όσο βρίσκεστε μέσα, δεν κινδυνεύετε. Ένα παιδί είναι έτοιμο να φύγει από το σπίτι του όταν. Παίζει ο δεξιός κοινόδοντας. Μόνο τότε ο οργανισμός είναι έτοιμο να αντιμετωπίσει όλους τους κινδύνους που παρέφυλαν. Dogtooth is available the way that you get all your movies. There's nothing specific about it. Uh, Amy, cannot wait to get into this very dark Greek film. And uh, we will uh, we will chat next week. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time because messes happen because hey listen remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation and you were like I'm serious if that leaks over the counter it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back and I was like yeah 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 of course don't worry about it I won't forget (laughs) well oh yeah that happens so start clean with Clorox use Clorox products as directed rinse after use if in contact with food surface Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.